0: Hey, listen, if you need a break from uh, the Ben Simmons arguments, nonstop Ben Simmons arguments and the uh, Joel Embiid meniscus discussions where all of a sudden everybody's a doctor, uh, then you've come to the right place. You've come to the Always Soccer in Philadelphia podcast where we're going to talk about the second best team in Philadelphia first. First. Team Ooh. in Philadelphia depends on how you look at it. You know, we're, we're always positive here. Uh, no, <laughs> no, no Negadelphia for uh, for this episode. And listen, joining us, uh, rejoining the program for a second time, a very special guest from uh, MajorLeagueSoccer.com. It's the armchair analyst, Matt Doyle, returning to the program. Matt, how are you, man?
1: It's good to be back. I thought we were going to talk Celtics, though. I got a lot on my mind after <laughs> the events of yesterday. My
0: listen, <laughs> I will talk Celtics. I just need a break from the Sixers. That's the only thing. I imagine this, this is a very... uh this is one of your favorite times of the year because we got NBA playoffs and there's plenty of soccer to talk about.
1: Yeah, I mean it's it's probably my favorite time of the year. That's also overwhelming because there are only so many hours in the day. I've been, I mean, it's it's been at least twelve hours of sports a day for the past week and a half or so.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, I'm just I'm just happy that we have playoff basketball here because. Uh... You know, the regular season it felt like every single game we were watching somebody. Somebody was injured. Somebody was doing load management. We had a COVID issue for this, so uh, you're probably like me, just glad that we're watching meaningful, meaningful stuff for the first time in a long time. You know? Yeah, very much so. Yeah. Right, well, listen. Let's not uh, beat around the bush here. This is a Philadelphia Union podcast, after all, so we're going to get it, uh, get it back to the Union, as they say. And uh, listen, I'll just, I'll just start you macro. You know, I always just like to toss it to the guests with a basic question to start off. Uh, the Union are in second place right now in the East, fourteen points, four wins, two losses, two ties. They're in the semifinals of the Champions League, believe it or not. Uh, you, you know, as you enter the uh, the national break here, uh, what, what's your national perspective on the uh, on the Union?
1: it's kind of shifted so rapidly and so naturally that you almost missed it. But like people think of the union as not precisely a big team, but like almost, to bring it back to basketball, almost in the way that people think about, the Spurs for a good long while, like, Oh, they don't have the, the the best players in the league, but they, there's this really shrewd organization and they produce a winning team every year. The young players improve and they have this like very clear style of play. So of course they're this good. And nobody felt like that two months ago. I I picked the union to finish like sixth or seventh in the East. Like they lost $15 million worth of homegrown players and they didn't go out on the market. And replace those guys mm-hmm. by spending a ton of money right away. They, they you know, their all time leading, uh, you know, appearance guy, uh, Ray Gaddis, the, the right back, he's been a starter for a decade almost and he retired. Like, that is a lot to to replace in one offseason for any team. And the union replaced that and they got better. So it's, it's, this weird acceptance. And I I mean, weird is maybe not the right word, but there's this acceptance and sort of embrace of the fact amongst the national media. I think that the union are just good now; They're just a good shrewd team and they're going to always produce these types of teams uh, that compete at or near the top of the Eastern conference. And I think last year there was not a lot of belief in that last year. They were the scrappy underdogs, you know, could they could they roll that, that 2019 playoff appearance into something bigger? And they did. It was kind of a surprise. But now it, it almost feels inevitable.
0: The San Antonio Spurs is actually a great comparison. I never thought of that before. But we've done a lot of crazy comparisons on this show in the past. We've compared Ray Gattis to Ben Simmons uh, because he's really, really good at some things and doesn't do anything. And <laughs> the other thing, he doesn't do at all. But, yeah, it's, it's true if you think about it because, like, you know, Dun- Duncan, Parker, Ginobili, you know, they were a great team with good players and they played a very, uh, uh, you know, an ob- obvious style and they had a great coach. Um, but, you know, you, you know, Skip Bayless and Stephen A. Smith wouldn't necessarily be doing 30 minutes on the TV talking about the San Antonio Spurs, you know. So it's just funny how they've kind of the union are like this pragmatic, very German kind of team where Ernst Tanner just sort of like plugs these guys in and they continue on without missing a beat. I mean, Elliot comes in for uh, Mark McKenzie, uh, Anthony Fontana and Jamiro Montero basically cover for Brendan Aronson going and Olivier Mbaiso comes in for Ray Gattis. And it's almost like they don't miss anything at all.
1: No, I mean, I, I would argue, and no offense to Ray, I would argue that Mbaiso is a clear upgrade over, over Ray Gattis based yeah. on what we've seen so far. And Like, I love Jamiro Montero as a 10. I I just, is especially in that diamond midfield, because Mm -hmm. he gets around the ball more than Brennan Aronson. Brennan Aaronson's amazing in transition, Um, but he didn't find the ball a ton, so the game didn't really run through him. When Montero's there, he's all over the ball on both sides of it, and I think it gives Philly a little bit more structure um, while at the same time still being super dynamic in in transition. So I, I... it doesn't surprise me that he looks good and it doesn't surprise me that the team looks so good with him playing in that spot. But the fact that it has all come together so quickly, despite, again, these significant losses, um, it's a credit to, to Jim. It's great credit to Jim Curtin. It's a credit to the whole organization. and Obviously, it's a credit
0: to these players. I'm going to give you my Jamiro take, and I, I want you to tell me if, <clears throat> if you agree with this, you disagree. I, I agree with you that I like him at the 10 and I think he's a good 10. I just love him at the 8. And um, I think my argument there is that I feel like a lot of the stuff that he does as a 10, um, he can still do as an 8. And what I mean by that, I guess... Is that, you know, I always thought he was a good like back to front kind of connector, you know, um, mm-hmm. somebody to kind of shuttle the ball from back to front, you know, um, especially with Madunian and not being there anymore. Like it sometimes it looks a little janky when they're trying to play out of the back or they're trying to move it forward or they're trying to connect the dots or whatever. And I just think like, look, if you're if you're moving forward in transition or even if you're if you're, you know, moving forward with the ball in possession, you know, the first two guys forward are going to be your strikers. Then you have your number 10. And there's going to be a fullback joining the play. And then I guess, you know, the fifth guy or the fourth guy forward is going to be one of the shuttlers. So it's not that I dislike Jamiro at the 10. I just I just think he's a really, really good eight. So is, am I, is that a fair assessment on my part?
1: No, it's absolutely a fair assessment on your part. And, and the fact that he is so comfortable in either of those spots gives Philly um, – a level of flexibility even within the same structure that they always play, which is that four, four, two diamond. Now, yeah. the, the thing, the thing that I, I love about him more as the 10, it, his defensive instincts and coverage, he just makes it miserable to try to play out against this union team. And yeah. if you look at South like so many teams build through their own number six um, or even a center back stepping up into midfield, Montero takes that away like he he makes like he makes that first step so much harder for other teams and it it leads to turnovers and turnovers are the currency of the of the modern game because turnovers lead to transition moments so I I understand why he played as a shoveler last year and obviously you can't argue with a supporter shield and you know selling Brendan Aronson for nine ten million dollars whatever it was yeah um but I think the team's ceiling is higher with Montero as a number 10, even though he's not the type of final third wizard that like a Zella Ryan or a Diego Valeri are.
0: Yeah. 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 He's not like a Maro Diaz kind of 10. Like that's mm. just not his game, you know? And you know, the, the interesting thing about it too, is that I think, I think a lot of people are under the assumption that Anthony Fontana would just sort of come in and replace Brendan Aronson like for like, and that uh, Jamiro Montero would just stay at the eight. But you know, that's that's one thing, the defensive side of it that you're talking about, where Anthony Fontana is not that. And then on the other side of it, you know, you have Leon Flock coming in and being a great signing, and union fans are super high on him right now. So to me, I mean that's the way I look at it. I mean, Jim always like Jim's a center back, you know, he loves guys who are gonna defend forward. And, um, the midfield configuration, I think ended up the way it did, number one because Fontana doesn't really do a lot of that you know dirty running that Brendan Aronson and Jamiro Montero do, and also just because they love flock and they wanted to get him on the field
1: yeah, I, I mean get like getting flock on the field is. <laughs> That's become a virtue in and of its own, given yeah. given how quickly he's adjusted. And it is it is almost like the, the Montero thing where it's like he can play multiple different spots. We saw what he did when Martinez was out playing as a six. He's been yeah. comfortable as an eight. It, it's I don't, like at this point, the system is so ingrained into what this team is that it becomes like self-perpetuating and self-reinforcing um, as long as the as long as the players buy in. And there's a room, I mean, there's room for Fontana's there as well. Like he's yeah. just going to have to, to win a job, whether it's as a second forward or, or a 10. I don't think the book is closed.
0: So, just a brief exercise here. So, they bring Dog in. Um, you, know, you know, let me put it this way if you're Jim Curtin, you got four midfield spots, and I'm going to give you Gajdog, Bedoya, Montero, Martinez, <clears throat> excuse me, and Flock. That's five guys for four spots. So if, if, if you were doing it, who, who is your odd man out?
1: I mean, let's see gosh, win the role first, Now, obviously he's going to get a chance to, they spend a lot of money on him. He's got a pretty good pedigree. Um, and they don't, they tend not to miss with their signings. Yeah. So uh, if, if he's coming in, he's probably, probably pretty good. Um, but I don't, I don't think it's a given that he's going to walk right into the role, but also like, that's, that's what you want as a team. You want, like that's a step forward for Philly especially as they juggle multiple competitions. You need to have not just five, you need to have six or seven guys for that that midfield, guys who you can throw out there and you know perform at x level and the hope I'm sure with Gazdag is that he will make it clear that he is the best number 10 on the team. That he he's a high level guy who, you know, can do for Philly's attack, what Babelo Reynoso did for Minnesota last year when he came yeah, in late yeah. in the year. Um, but, like, that's not a given. And, and I, I at this point, you just kind of trust Curtin to figure it out because he's done that so often over the last five years.
0: Matt, my only thing with the union, and maybe you can help me fill in the blanks here, is that I feel like as a counter-pressing team um, that really thrives on turning defense into offense, um, that when that's not – necessarily working or I don't know maybe I'll put it this way I, I'm still kind of looking to see like what their offensive identity is you know because they thrive on turning teams yeah. over they hit a bunch of counterattacks against Atlanta but um you know the union of of two years ago you know they get like Medunian in on the ball and Bedoya would get up on the right flank and for like five minutes in a the game they would look like Barcelona knocking the ball around mm-hmm. you know they'd like strangle a team with possession or you know they bring El Seno in and they go four two three one, and they haven't done any of that. Um, this year because he's injured. So I'm just curious, like, you know, if the the counter press isn't working and they're not turning defense into offense, like where do the goals come from or what what does their identity become if if that's not really working for them?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. Um, And and I like, I love that Union team 2018 and 2019, the one where Madunian was at the back point spraying. Yeah, so did I,
0: man. I just I loved watching. I, people are probably sick of hearing me talk about Medunian because he's long gone, but he was just such a unique player, wasn't he?
1: He was. He in that left foot of his, and the way that they were able to make the game big and it, it turn into like a pure possession team that would yeah. disorganize opponents with the ball and and you know create just wonderful sequences of play and a lot of goals that way. Like I love watching that type of soccer this current iteration of the union um, is not as fun to watch for me, uh-huh. um, but they're arguably more effective because the answer to your question is they create transition moments. Like it's, if it's not happening in, in transition moments, they will find a way to create more transition moments and they generally win those moments. It's, yeah. it's, it's about having this dis- sort of discrete sil- uh, skill set. Now that's not to say that they're a bad possession team. Um, they're certainly nowhere near as good as they were in in, in twenty nineteen, but I do think that's a the club they have in the bag um, because I, I mean Martinez can spray the ball. Yeah, we've seen that from yeah. him. Yeah, he, he has can. the ability to open up a game, and then if you get both those fullbacks pushing up, and of course uh, you know one of the tens, and then two center forwards, like you, you can do some stuff while playing on the front foot. We just haven't seen a ton of it, but I I do think that's something that they're going to have to get better at over the course of this season mm-hmm. if they're going to end up you know, winning another trophy, be it Shield or MLS Cup or even CCL.
0: I've always had this kind of observation on Alejandro Bedoya, and I, I want you to help me kind of flesh it out to make it sound more profound because I don't really know. I, I don't really know how to add anything more to it. I've said it a couple times like on Twitter and on this podcast, but I don't feel like there's much depth to it. But, um, you know, he's playing as a right sided shuttler and he just he always seems to pick these perfect moments to know when to get forward. You know, the, a, a fullback is is sucked in. He gets behind him. You know, they abuse Saprissa doing this. And like my, my thought has always been like two things. Number one, just when you have veteran savvy and you've played as long as he is, he just knows when to go and when not to go. And number two, and this thing I think sometimes falls by the wayside. But when he was in Sweden and when he was in France, like early in his career, he was a winger. So yeah. I think naturally, like you're used to playing over there, you just kind of know where the space is and where it isn't. But I've never seen somebody in, you know, the 10 years of watching the union who just exploits space the way he does and just knows sort of how to like knife into those areas.
1: Yeah, it's it's his superpower. And it has been since uh, since he sort of came onto the scene for U.S. soccer 10, 12 years ago. Um, you know, he's not an eye-catching player on the ball. He doesn't score a ton of goals or even pick up a, a ton of assists. But he um, – our game is a game of time and space. Your team, like your team is tr- is fighting to create time and or space. Um, and that's a combination of what you do with the ball and what you do without the ball. And uh, Bedoya is very good with the ball, but he's spectacular without the ball. His yeah. uh, his ability to, to, to find those gaps. Um, even to the, like, even when he's, not the intended recipient of a pass, even when he knows that he's not getting the ball, um, doing that rearranges the opposing defense. And it uh, creates gaps for the rest of his teammates to exploit. Uh, and, and that is, a, I mean, the level he does it at is, is a rare and super valuable uh, skill to have. And um, I mean, he's one of the best off-the-ball players in the league, and it's why the union tend to bog down when, when he's not on the field. Yeah. I don't know if that's more profound. I, I wish it was, but there's no good way to, to really explain this other than saying it, it's about time and space and he finds a way to manipulate both.
0: No, it, it's correct. And I just, you know, the thing I, it's, it, it's something that you can't put a number on. Like you can't put a data set behind it. Like how else do you Second illustrate? spectrum
1: is trying. So we, we have track. <laughs> no, we have tracking data now yeah. at, at the league. And they have, like, at every every stadium now has this setup with, like, 17 different cameras that gets, like, precise GPS coordinates of every player and the ball on the field at every second during the game, mm. the speed at which they're moving and all that And so they track stuff like um, high speed off ball runs per game. Um, And they have like, you know, (laughs) bells and whistles building out from that. Uh, I got to take a look at it. I imagine that there's a a tier with Badoya and and Christian Roldan and then everybody else, (laughs) you know, well below that level.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, that's great. And that's that's what you need because before it was like, what did we have? I could pull video clips and I could just show people video clips on Twitter, but I, you know, Otherwise, I have like a generic heat map that didn't illustrate when it was on ball or off ball or stuff like that. So, yeah, I think you need those analytical tools to kind of flesh out these arguments. Otherwise, it's just people just got to take us at our word, right? Or what, right. Whatever, whatever video I can pull of it, you know. So I'm, hopefully we can illustrate a little bit better as that moves forward, you know. And just a sidebar, too, on that. I, I, when Jim comes back on the show, I'd love to just sort of pick his brain and say, hey, what data do you like and what data do you not like? Mm-hmm. You know, cause sometimes I think, you know, you're an NBA guy and a basketball guy, so you can, you can appreciate this, but like, you know, sometimes I think you get way too far into the numbers kind of thing where you can just sort of twist it into any kind of narrative you want to spin. Whereas soccer is more of a linear free-flowing kind of game where it's not like there aren't like three point percentages and field goal attempts and stuff. It doesn't, you can't get as deep on that as you can in basketball, you know? So I, I that like, that's curious to me. Like, do you find that interesting? Like going oh, through yeah. like how much data is too much versus like what's appropriate?
1: Yeah, it's overwhelming with soccer, and it's because that we don't have as many uh, discrete data points that are clearly good versus clearly bad. Yeah. We don't know like with basketball if it's a you know you're running a, a two-man game and you know they average one point two points per possession when Chris Paul runs a pick and roll with DeAndre Ayton, like you know that's good. you you just, there are that many data points. There are that many times that the ball goes in the bucket and the ball goes in the bucket. That is good. So you can measure that with with soccer. There's three goals a game, you know, and and like, okay, that's why we have expected goals because we know that expected goals over time tend to be more predictive of success than just raw scoreboard. Um, So you are sort of like reverse engineering from that. But even with that, there's so much noise and so much luck uh, in soccer that it's tough to say yeah. <laughs> we're gonna get anywhere near where basketball is in terms of having these like hard and fast data sets that explain what's happening in the
0: game. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, you always want to be somewhere in between the sports radio guy who's like, "Well, the analytics suck," you know, and the, <laughs> the guy who's just who's only giving you data and, and doesn't like isn't gonna you know know, fine-tune, contextualize things like that for sure. Um listen, I only got two more for you. Um Jim Curtin. yeah, it's interesting to me because um I I believe he's now the second longest tenured coach in the league behind Vermise. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah. Um Ben Olsen I think would have been number two yep. last year before he was let go there were plenty of points in the past where they could have moved on. They could have fired him. They could have brought somebody else in, um, but they stuck to their guns and they said, we believe in the Academy and we believe in our process for lack of a better word. And uh, now they're seeing the fruits of of that labor. And uh, you know, I'm just curious, you know, how you see that from a national perspective. And if you think that other teams look at that and say, Hey, look at what Philly did with their coach and believed in him and stuck by him. And if, if maybe like that's what the shift should be.
1: Yeah, it's – my joke this year ahead of the season was, like, this is the first time that Jim Curtin's come into the season not on the hot seat. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. You yeah. know, if you, if you look back every every year, if you could have made – from 2014 onwards, if you could have made, you know, top five coaches who were most likely to, to get the ax, it felt like Jim was there, and the fact that he kept surviving and – earning the trust of, of one front office and then another. And, of course, when Ernst came in, and uh, you know, a, a new GM, you would have thought immediately a new manager. Um, he, he's repaid that faith and then some because he's clearly one of the elite coaches in the league. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that is going to inform the way other teams operate. Um, you know, if he, if he wins an MLS Cup this year, then – that'll probably carry a little bit more weight. If they sell another couple players for five or $8 million, that'll carry a little bit more weight um, because a coach who can do that pays his own salary and everybody else's. Um, But I, I would certainly hope like right now, Luchi Gonzalez is struggling in Dallas. Freddie Juarez is struggling a bit with RSL. Mm -hmm. Those are guys with like kind of similar backgrounds to Jim. They started their coaching careers in the academy. They had, various moments of success and now they're having a little bit of struggle in their first couple of years as, MLSA MLS head coaches, I would hope that those two organizations take a look at what's happened in Philadelphia yeah. and, and keep the faith to a pretty good degree. Um, I, I don't know if that's going to happen. I know that there is sports. So there's always a shiny new object sort of uh, approach. If you can get a Tata Martino, you probably want to get a Tata Martino, yeah, um, yeah. but there's no guarantee of that either. So it's, it's yeah. you know, but it's it's been uh, it, it's been a unique story. Like there there isn't another story like Jim Curtin's amongst MLS managers because
0: or, or rarely like in 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 world soccer either. You know? Yeah. yeah. And,
1: and so it's you know because he was he was never kind of anointed. He just fell into the job a little bit, and then yeah. he just kept being good enough to hold on to it until he became great enough to not just make it his own, but like i I sent out a tweet a month ago a month and a half ago about how he would be the natural choice to succeed Jesse Marsh at rb salzburg yeah and I, that that I wasn't just shit posting there like that that was like <laughs> i I actually believe that um and, and I'm curious to see if there will end up being that kind of path for him because I think he's that good
0: well and well, let me just throw in a quick follow-up here i, I I, I agree 100% that that makes a ton of sense, you know, because look, he's already technically like in the Red Bull system with the uh, Ernst Tanner connection. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, he's got the same kind of track record, same, you know, the 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 system is there. You know, he's got the Brendan Aronson connection. You know, he just came up the same way that Jesse Marsh did, kind of, if you think about it. And, um, you know, he it would just make a lot of sense. I just, I try to think like personally, you know, what would motivate you? Like, would he do that kind of move? You know, he's got three kids. Yeah. He still lives in the city. Um, I could see him doing like a, like a Salzburg kind of move and then coming back and maybe taking a job doing like the U21 national team over here. So that, that feels like a natural path um, to me, but I don't know.
1: Why would he walk the, be... the U21s? Like at, at this point, uh, that, that's a, that's a crappy job. I, like, I guess it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. If he takes a job with U.S. soccer, eventually or someday, it, it would be as a
0: full national team head coach. Yeah. Because like
1: the, none of the youth national team programs are, are worth leaving an MLS or or a European job for.
0: Yeah. I guess I never really thought of it. Yeah. I don't see. I guess it would make 100% sense that he could go to like Salzburg for a couple of years and then come back and coach the national team. I guess that's not a job that he would be unqualified at that point. So, yeah, I guess I never really thought of it that way. Um, okay, last one. I, t- I told you I wasn't going to keep you that long. Uh, <laughs> Champions League, Club America. Do they have a chance?
1: Yeah, they, I, I think they do have a chance. Um it, You know, part of it is that the Union are really good, and they're going to be in the in the middle of their season. So the early season rust that really does play a big role in uh, the first couple rounds of the Champions League. Like that's that's not going to be a problem for Philly, and we've seen it in the past, right? Like when Club America came to uh, Atlanta a couple years ago for Campione's Cup. It's not the exact same thing, but mm-hmm. like that game was played at a good level and that Atlanta team outplayed them. Um, Philly, you know, can follow that blueprint. They, they, they have the ability to do that. And um, th- then the other thing is like Club America is, they're always in a little bit of flux. You know, like, like their 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 yeah. manager is always on the hot seat. Just now it's Solari, it's not um, Piojo anymore. Um, they they're, they always have players going in and out. So they like, given the time of year, um, there's a good chance that America will be the one that's a little bit rusty or a little bit not on the same page. So there are there are chances to exploit this, and um, I don't think Philly are the favorites, but it wouldn't be a giant shock if they advance to the final.
0: Well, I'm I'm amazed that it's. I still got to pinch myself whenever I think about that. The fact that they're going to play Club America in the semifinal of the Champions League. You know, this is not your grandmother's Philadelphia Union for sure, but they deserve it and they played well to this point. So I'm I'm cheering for them and I hope they do well. Uh, Matt Doyle, MajorLeagueSoccer.com's armchair analyst. Uh, you're probably already following him on Twitter, but his handle is at Matt Doyle76. Matt, thanks for coming on. And uh, you know, I hope that your Boston Celtics. Honestly, I hope that the Celtics find a good coach and uh, continue to to play well because like. Uh, The NBA is better when the Sixers and the Celtics are both good and that rivalry is near the top of the heap. That's my honest take on that.
1: That's my honest take as well. This is just a blip. Just one year. (laughs) We'll be back next year. 55 wins. Eastern Conference Final.
0: (laughs) Matt, thanks for your time, man. We appreciate it as always. Take care, buddy. Okay, let's see what you got in the way of questions and comments and concerns. And actually, this batch of questions comes from last week uh before the Portland game. I was gonna do the podcast Thursday or Friday, but the original guest fell through. So these questions might be old, uh, but I think they will hold. How's that for a rhyme? Okay, uh Matt Matt Batdorf he says, Since we're paying uh, since we are already paying close to $2 million for our strikers, what is a likely spot for us to upgrade to improve our anemic offense? Uh, also, can you believe we're paying cash for almost a million per year? Um, yeah, look, I mean, they went out and got gosh-dog. They got their number 10, so you're not going to add anything there. Uh, Sergio Santos and Casper Shabilka making a decent amount of money. So this is the, only, the only upgrade you can make is to pay more money for a better striker. You know, upgrade Santos and make him a bench guy. It's really the only thing uh, I think he could probably do there, you know. Um, and also, can he believe you're paying cash for almost a million per year? Uh, no, I, I I thought he was less than that, honestly. But uh, I gotta admit that when I came off the beat, I kind of lost track of with um lost track of a lot of the contract stuff and the salary stuff and things like that. Um, More macro kind of stuff we do on the podcast and on Crossing Broad now, you know. Uh, Richard Saunders says, kind of a random one, but uh, way back when Christian Polisic was just a kid from Hershey, he was with PA Classics when the union started. Was he ever on the team's radar? Uh, Was it just a different time? Um, Yeah, so listen, the the Polisic thing was he he came over and he played with the union youth squads back in like 2012. And uh, he did get some games for the Union. He was coming; they had to drive two hours, you know, from Hershey to get out here. So a lot of what he was doing was still with, with PA Classics. But Peter Novak wanted him, and had his dad into the stadium and like a suite and everything. And they pitched him and said, like, "Hey, this could you could be playing here someday, right?" The academy obviously didn't exist back then, but they never really had a chance of landing him because he already he already had. European scouts who were who had an eye on him back then, too. So, you know, Dortmund was sniffing around. I think he went down to Bradenton to train, and uh, you know, he had a Croatian passport through his dad, who was also a soccer player. Um, so it, it was easier for him to get the um, you know, the work permit or the visa or whatever to go over and play in Germany, but yeah, the the union sniffed around, and Peter was interested, and he got fired. Um, I don't think that had anything to do with it, but that's just to give you the timeline. This was like 2012 and, uh, he always was kind of, you know, had, had sites on Europe and that was always what, what, what was going to happen. Uh, but they, they sniffed around and they, and they tried to bring him in for sure. You know, uh, J- Jim said, I think a couple of years ago that it was never, that he always thought that they would never really have him, that he would go elsewhere. So I think that kind of put a bow on that one. Uh, unkempt surfer says, well, gosh dog plays a striker, uh or a cam, an attacking midfielder. Uh why does our attack look so funky just having two attacking fullbacks uh somehow interfere with how much width we can have? Uh no, I just think um you know, that they're not they're a team that kinda turns defense into offense. You know, it's counter pressing, it's winning the ball back. They're not they're not a possession team anymore. You know, Matt and I were talking about this. They don't have that back to front ball movement you know it's kind of kind of staggered moving forward they're not going to kind of strangle you with possession they are not really an on ball chance creation team you know interestingly enough in the portland game they scored three set pieces on terrible uh, marking defending from from the timbers and look credit to the union for finishing those and and being in the right place at the right time and Corey Cory Burke attacking that third one and um you know getting forward and staying with the play while three Portland guys just sort of ball-watched and stood there. (laughs) Um, But, you know, up until that point, the Union had had six goals in MLS play. Two of them were on set pieces, and four of them were from open play. Um, You know, and they had scored a bunch of counters in the Champions League where – you know, I think that's a product of those games being two leg you know, those series being two legs and the urgency of needing to score and needing to get forward and doing things like that. But yeah, I don't really know what their offensive offensive identity is. You know, it's about turning defense into offense and counter pressing and things like that. But they don't have a lot of organic build up and chance creation and things like that. So that's um kind of the question. And Goshdog's gonna be a midfielder. He's gonna be the number ten. Um that's where they're gonna play him. Uh, Dan checks in with a self-admitted inferiority complex question. He says, during Extra Time Radio on Monday, um, the cast discussed who the top teams are in each conference, uh, suspiciously leaving out the Union in their Eastern Conference talk. So how would you say the Union stack up against other teams in the league? Well, um, so that was before the Portland game. I think they had them in their power rankings. I think they had the Union up at number three uh, league-wide, and now they are three points behind the Revs. Um so they're second place in the East. I, I think they stack up fine against every other team in the league. They don't have offensive firepower, but they don't really give up a lot of goals. They're they're hard to play against. You know, it's consistent from one through eleven. I think they're the same they're kind of an iteration of the team that we saw last year, where they just kind of don't really give up anything cheap. You know? So I, I I think they can play with anybody in the league. That Revs game was a good game. Uh, I think they would give Seattle a run for their money. Yeah, I don't think they're – if if we're talking tiers here, you know, the Union are Tier 1 or right underneath that, you know, Tier 1B. Is that a tier? We'll say it is. Uh, Richard Saunders wants to sneak in with the second question. He says, what's the optimal lineup for this squad? Is Martinez a liability long-term? Uh, has the U ever had this much depth before? Yeah, listen, I, I don't. I, I I'll answer it this way. I think it's f- fascinating that a lot of um, a lot of you guys, a lot of you people, uh, meaning the fans, like the, it's interesting to me how big the fans are, how high the fans are on Leon Flock, and um, I I really like him. I think he's played great so far. Um, I I think it's. I I don't want to put the cart ahead of the horse though with with him. You know, I think Brujo is your number six, and they play. So much better um, with him on the field. Um, I think Flock is better as a shuttler, but his his versatility is what makes him great. You know, um, I just still think that I would I would go with Gajdog and Bedoya and Montero and um, Martinez as my as my four in the midfield, and then I would have Sergio Santos next to Cashbur. You know, and then I would bring Fontana and Burke off the bench in the backline to backline. Yeah, you know, I, I think that's I think that's pretty straightforward that's probably their best look you know um, Jeff wool uh, investor emeritus of crossing broad checking and he says what opposing player would you most like to dump a box of popcorn on? I would say uh, Felipe from uh, New York Red Bulls, DC United, Vancouver, Montreal. Uh, Big Mac says do the union not value forwards like the Eagles don't value linebackers? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question actually. I think it's I think it's less you know it's like I think the Eagles linebacker thing was more like a product of scheme. Like they they were always going to be like, if we have defensive linemen who can rush the quarterback, and if we have corners who are capable enough, uh, which over the last couple of years they were not then the linebacker shouldn't really matter. You know what I mean? Whereas I think a lot of what the union do is really predicated on how good the midfield is and how mobile the midfield is. And so I think that they say that, you know, if our midfield, which is the most important part of our scheme and the way we play, if they're, if we have quality there and they're doing what they do, we can get away with putting our money and our value and our focus there. And the, and strikers will score if the midfield is doing what they're doing. You know what I mean? So I think it's not that they don't value that position. I think it's just kind of a byproduct of the scheme and, and something that they do value a little bit more. Right? But that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't care about the strikers at all. So um uh John Christophe had a question about Portland. Sorry, man, I'll I'll hit you up on the next one. Um Kanye Wu says I saw the list of salaries on the team Shabilko is making almost one million dollars a year, uh and it's just behind Jameer on Ali is the highest paid um, regardless of output, this makes me think we won't have another high-paid striker on the books for a while. Yeah, that's the second question about this. Yeah, I listen. I what was Santos like five hundred uh, thousand dollars? How was his transfer fee? I gotta look and see what he's making. But uh, yeah, look, it's the conundrum that we talked about last year and the year before. It's like it's easy to improve a team that's not good, but how do you improve a team that is good? you got to make harder decisions, you know, like Ray Gattis retires. You've tried to upgrade at that spot. If you're paying a $1 million striker, how do you upgrade a $1 million striker? You go to a $2 million striker. So yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, that's probably what it, what it comes down to. You know, I, I still think they would be, if they had a DP striker next to Cashper up there, you know, and then gosh dog in the, in the midfield with, with those other three guys. I mean, I think that's probably the best you could hope for, you know? Um, uh, yeah. Uh, Jared Ramster says, what do you make of the Alvis Powell rumor uh, depth for Mbizo or would he take over the top spot uh, for Mbizo? Yeah. I like it. Alvis Powell's still, still pretty young. He started and played a ton of games for Portland, but like since he in Miami, he just didn't really, I, I got to go back and look at why it didn't work out for him there. Cause he was a really, really good starting fullback in this league not long ago and then kind of dropped off. So, um, uh, that's something worth looking at, you know, say, why didn't he stick in those other two places? Uh, Dave Burt is checking in. He says, is, uh, is a four, two, 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 a thing? Uh, and if so, can the, U pull it off with Gage dog and how would it work? <coughs> Excuse me. Um, yes, the four, two, two, two is, is a thing. It's, it's called the empty bucket and, uh, the union actually ran this formation in 2011 and uh, if you remember, it was Sebastian Latou and Carlos Ruiz up top. They had Justin Mapp on one side and I think Mike Farfan on the other side. And then they had Stefani Migliaranzi and um, Brian Carroll as the two defensive midfield. Basically, what they mean by empty bucket is that you don't play with a 10. You play with two D mids and two wingers. Right. So um, to answer the question, no, they can't pull it off. They They don't, they don't have wingers anyway. You know, so they can't even play really a four, two, three, one as long as is injured. So, um empty buckets a thing. The union aren't gonna run that and they haven't um haven't run that for a long time. Almost almost ten years now, you know. Um, Pat in the playoff hat, he says, uh, best starting five from the union to <laughs> to compete in a basketball game. Wow. Um well who are the tallest guys they've ever had? Jack Elliott's gotta go in there uh, Farid Mondragon, Chris Kanopka, wasn't he like six foot six or something like that? He would have to go in there. Um, they'd have a bunch of combo (laughs) forwards, like a bunch of tweeners, a bunch of shooting, shooting guards slash wing slash uh, small forward hybrids, right? Kanopka, Elliot, Danny Califf. That's a good question. Who, who are like the five tallest dudes the union have ever had? I think it would be uh, like goalkeepers would be a lot of them. Um, Chase, oh my God, what was the goalkeeper's name? Chase, whatever, who was in the um, Stoke City game? He would go in there to Kanapka, Jack Elliott. Um, it's a good question, really good question. Put one small guy out there too, and he can be Iverson, right? So, uh, Silver Ray says, why does our fan base not rate Cashbury? He's done pretty much everything that Jim had asked him to do, and then some. Um, he could catch CJ this year for second in Union goals. Do does the fan base not rate Cashper? I don't know. I, I, I think it's a little bit of a straw man thing there. I, I, you know, talk about on this podcast and on the post game show about how you, you get frustrated with him and you're ready to, um, tweet something about him, complaining about him, and he shows up and scores. But I, I don't know if they don't. I don't. I wouldn't say that they don't rate him. I think that maybe it's like, um, you know, when he's just kind of. Bopping around for eighty minutes and then he scores, and then that's it. I, I think it's kind of like a the skew of 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 his contribution versus what it looks like he's doing the other you know minutes that he's out there on the field. Maybe that's why people look at him a certain way. I don't know if that makes any sense, but strikers are like that, you know. It, it's it's you, you see Jacob Glessis running around out there like putting out fires every five minutes, you know, or clearing or winning the ball in the air. Whereas strikers, it's like eh a period of inactivity for a while, and they pop up with a goal. So I think so that's just part of the natural ebb and flow of the whole thing. Uh, MR says, where's Stuart Finley, and why hasn't he been playing? He has an injury. his a muscle injury, so that was unfortunate. But, yeah, they haven't rotated anybody on the back line at all. Um, so hopefully the back line holds up because they don't have a ton of depth um, there right now. They have to go to Aureli and Collin if one of the center backs is out. Um, David Pierce says, who was the best Union center back ever, and why is it Glessness? <laughs> yeah, he's playing really well. Jack Elliott's playing damn good, too. I, I think the thing with Jack Elliott is, like, uh, he kind of gets overshadowed just because he's played next to Glessness and McKenzie, who Glessness this year and McKenzie last year. I think you could say that those are two, probably two of the best individual center back seasons that we've ever seen. Glessness in 2021, McKenzie in 2020. I would say that Carlos Valdez in 2011 or 2012 would, would go on the list as well, too. Uh, Marisa Dew was good in 2015. But, uh, yeah, some love for Jack Elliott, too. We should show show more love for Jack Elliott. You know? and Richard, uh, Richard Scott Berry says, uh, With the way the midfield is now after uh, Gostad coming back from Hungary, uh, do you think Fontana will end up being traded to a team that needs a player like him? I don't want it to happen, but I wouldn't be surprised if it happens. That's an interesting thought. Uh, I still think there's value in him coming off the bench, you know. Which is, look, we got to remind ourselves that even though he scored six goals last year, uh, a a lot, a lot of his effectiveness was coming off the bench. So, you know, if you think about taking using full strength Union team, you got Flock who can come on and help close a game. Um, you got Corey Burke who can play striker. Um, you got Anthony Fontana who can come in and play the number 10 and, and make those runs into the box and rip a couple shots. So I still think there's value there. I don't think they have enough depth that you just turn around and get rid of a guy like Fontana right away. You know. Oh, we got, who's this checking in? It's union Hulk. Um says Kevin Dino with the shit ton of fancy players, either on a free or available. Uh, Leo Messi, Sergio Ramos, uh, sir, Harry Kane, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, does MLS get any of them this summer? Also, how bad did the office fuck up by replacing Michael Scott with Andy Bernard? It was just the same shit. Yeah, they did. I mean, it's not its not the same with Michael Scott, without Michael Scott, let's be honest there. Uh, Sergio Ramos, I don't know, Harry Kane. Somebody should make a bid for Harry Kane in MLS about that. Maybe Miami will go get him. And then they get fined another $2 million or whatever that was. Um... Okay, Charlie has two questions. He says, "What's the, what's the obsession with finding a replacement for Ali Bedoya when he still got two to three more years left in him?" Yeah, that's a good question too. I, I don't, I don't think anybody's obsessed with like finding a replacement for him. I think they're just they're just looking into the future and saying, "Look, the guy's thirty three years old," um, and I think with Leon Flock coming on, they they see similarities in the way they play, right? So maybe that's why it's turned into this thing where he could be Ali's replacement. at Some. Point you know but if you take the word replacement and you change it into like air right h-e-i-r like then it doesn't sound as damaging right <laughs> it's like replacement has like a negative connotation like the guy needs to go you know but if he's like the heir apparent or the next guy up then that that makes it sound a little bit different you know uh question number two he says is, is jameer montero the best union signing of all time uh, i don't mean best player um best bang for your buck i'd say yes uh, Andre Blake is a close second. Um, Jameer Montair, the best union signing of all time. I mean, there's a lot of factors that that you could, that could go into making that argument. You could say that they scouted him during Ernie's, um, time. Cause he knew him from when he was playing in the Netherlands. And then they kept an eye on the loan to France. that didn't work out as well. And then they swooped in on the transfer and then they turned the, tr- or I'm um, sorry, the, the loan. And then they turned the loan into a permanent transfer. Um, I think when you look at it in its totality like that, you could certainly make the case that, that yeah, it was like that for sure. Yeah. It's a good shout. I don't know. You got to go back and Kai Wagner was a great signing too, taking a third division guy out of Germany and turning him into a starting left back. Yeah. That goes right near the top for me too. Ernst has had a lot of good ones, man. I mean, he barely misses on anything. So I feel comfortable with anything he's doing. Right. Yeah. I'll give you my Mount Rushmore of that on the next podcast. Um, Yeah, listen. Okay, that's it. That's it. it. All the questions there. So, uh, uh, thanks again to Matt for coming on. Hopefully, you guys enjoyed the interview. And, uh, you know, during the international break, we're going to try to get some uh, union uh, folks on here, too. You know, I used to have a policy where I didn't have current union players on, but I'm going to scrap it because it's like, well, I think they can have some interesting things to say. You know, the policy was always that I wasn't going to have current players on because I didn't want to do a podcast where it was like, uh, yeah, we just got to work hard and play hard and blah, blah, blah. Like I always like doing former players because they could be more open and more honest and you could ask them different questions, right? Whereas current players aren't going to give you much. But um, we should try to get Bedoya on definitely because he's always a good quote. And um, uh, Jim mentioned coming back. On, I think we were going to try to get Jim um, back on the show at some point too. So maybe now it's a good time with the international break. Um, okay, latest episode. Thanks for listening, everybody, and we'll see you next time.